Radiant is we have a diverse uh, amount of traditions represented in this congregation. I grew up kind of evangelical Christian, not in a mainline thing. So to be honest with you, Advent is, is not something that I'm super familiar with. I know that when I was a little kid, we used to attend a, a military chapel because my dad was in the service. And I think I wore a robe and carried a, a, a little candle thingamajigger. But uh, I've repressed those memories. But I do know that, can I be honest with you, the first time that I can really remember, I won't count my early childhood, being in a service with an Advent reading and a candle was exactly a year ago tomorrow, which would have been my candidate sermon when I came and you, and you voted. So, that's, so here we are, and I thought to myself, what am I supposed to do with Advent? And uh, wanted to take some time off of our normal series and really speak to these four themes over the next few weeks. Now, with the choir concert and the children's program, speaking may be a little abbreviated, but uh, that will be the focus for this next uh, four weeks of messages, or miniature messages, if you will, speaking of Advent. I, uh, I did some research. I had to Google it to make sure I'm doing this right, because I don't want to come up here and make some proclamation about Advent that is, that is incorrect. Uh, and so while I was doing so, I came across some awesome resources. I'll share those in a moment. But uh, Advent is a season of preparation as we look forward to celebration of Christmas it's a, it's a season where we stand in, in two realities. Advent really means coming or arrival. And we stand in two realities on looking back to a coming or an arrival of, of Jesus, uh, taking on flesh and the incarnation and his birth. And then we look forward to another arrival that will happen is Christ's return. And we just read this, this, this theme of hope for today. And it's a, it's a theme that's familiar enough for all of us that I don't think that we really need to define that, but yet we're going to define hope as we move forward in this message. As I think about hope and Christmas time, I know as a child, my hopes were not necessarily as Jesus-focused and centered as I would like to admit. Oftentimes, my hopes centered around Christmas presents. Anyone else or just me? Oh, okay. Just making sure. I make a lot of confessions up here, and I do it at my own risk. Just making sure you're not judging me. You're with me. All right. Well, this past weekend, I went Black Friday shopping uh, for my own presents because I... (laughs) Don't judge me. Hold on. Let me get there. Because I had this traumatic experience as a child. I was hoping and longing and anticipating Christmas, knowing that I had asked for some specific things, and uh, it didn't happen. As a matter of fact, I opened an alarm clock. Nowhere on my list was there an alarm clock. <laughs> they could have said, give me a list of things that you would like to punish you with, Jerome. I would have said, alarm clock. I mean, that's really what I felt like. Are you serious? I'm getting an alarm clock for Christmas? This, I realize what I'm about to say here does not make me sound good. It makes me sound like a spoiled child. And that's fair. I won't even try to refute that. But I received an alarm clock, and right or wrong, I was disappointed and I was disturbed by this. And I tell you the story, not so you can judge me, but just to illustrate that we tend to put our hope in the wrong things, in the wrong places. There was misplaced hope there, expecting, waiting, and longing for some desired outcome, but it was still kind of up to... So right now, my parents, they're, 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 they're traveling up here for Christmas, and... Uh, 
They're, they're, they're at the point in life where they're like, we're going to send you money, buy Christmas gifts for the kids and for yourself uh, with our money, put our name on it, and that's good enough for me. So I, I took advantage of Black Friday shopping, and I'm getting a new alarm clock. No, I'm not getting a new alarm clock, but I'm getting something different. Uh, and my parents have never, been the, have never been so great at shopping for gifts as they are now. All right. Don't tell them that when they're here. Now, you may not have received an alarm clock, but you may have a similar experience, whether it's Christmas or not, of being disappointed or disturbed by putting your hopes into something or someone or someplace that leaves you wanting, thinking that maybe that if this should happen, if this could happen, I will find fulfillment and satisfaction. We tend to do that by default, kind of naturally as humans. We put our hopes in things and people and situations We put our hopes in things that will ultimately disappoint us. For some of us here, we put our hopes, and I think think this list I'm about to read is true of all of us, almost at all times in different areas. Most of us don't just have one thing we hope in and for and on, but think about your life. Some of us put our hopes in people or a group of people, a a government system or other some sort of system that we may think that this is going to bring satisfaction, our own achievement or opportunities. We hope and we long and we yearn and we're not so sure if it's going to come true, but if it does, we find ourselves even still wanting. If you think about the places we put our hopes, oftentimes those hopes are based on if things work out a certain way. And if they work out the way that we hope it's going to work out, It will fill us and satisfy us, that deep-down longing in our soul. These are misplaced hopes because nothing on this side of heaven can truly fill us up, can truly satisfy us. Nothing can really deliver. Which, a statement like that makes you ask the question, well, then why bother with hope? What, What hope is there in hoping? What hope is there for hope? Let me stop. And like I said, we're going to end up defining hope a little bit through this message. But if you think about the word hope, we use it in daily life all the time, don't we? I hope the Colts win. I hope our house guests for Thanksgiving would finally leave. (laughs) We were kind of those house guests on Thursday, not sure, doing the dance. You want us to leave? No, no. Okay, we're staying. (laughs) And then there was a great sigh of relief when we finally left, so... eh. I hope that I don't have to eat another turkey sandwich for at least a month. With all the leftover turkey sandwiches, I'm sure we've all been eating. We use the word hope all the time and in all different places. Hope is used in the Bible over 200 times. And the way it's used in the Bible kind of helps us define it. It's a confident expectation in the future. There's a contagious enthusiasm around the word hope in, in Scripture, when we see there's an enthusiasm, a confidence, an expectation that something good is coming, but a real solid expectation, not just a, I wish this will come true, and we're going to see that here in a moment. Nothing on this side of heaven can truly satisfy and fill us up, so where do we put our hope? And the answer to that question, I think, is something we could apply year-round, but in particular during this season, as we anticipate Christmas and the celebration of an Advent I, uh, I'm in a new place in life when it comes to Advent, and I'll talk about that when we get to kind of the end of this message, just in, in really experiencing the next, what, 25 days in a way that I, I look forward, and I, tr- I trust God's going to help our family experience this season. 
in a very meaningful way, probably more meaningful than I'd like to admit we have in the past. If you're a believer, you probably already know the answer to the question of where do we put our trust? But just because you know a truth or the answer to a question doesn't mean it's rightly applied to your life. I could tell you before I wrote this message that I know the answer to this message, but is it rightly applied in my heart? If you're not a believer today, you're just checking things out, you're a guest, maybe you came because you're visiting family, we want to say welcome. And I would imagine that you probably know enough about church that you could probably guess what the right answer is that we're going to see. But can I just say that I believe this message, as we walk through where we're going to go, may help clarify some ideas or some thoughts or some questions you may have. And quite honestly, you too, wherever you stand on the journey of faith, know what it's like to find disappointment in misplaced expectations, misplaced hope. If you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to Romans chapter 15? And as you do, let me give you a little background. Paul writes the book of Romans to, anyone know? To the Romans, well, the church in Rome. Surprise. Romans is considered to be Paul's masterpiece. This is, I mean, he writes a lot of letters in the New Testament, you know that, but this is rich and deep and long compared to other letters. 16 chapters, and let me give you a really simple outline, and then we'll kind of go down and kind of talk about how that outline breaks out. The first 11 chapters of, of, of Romans gives us some of the most important passages regarding our salvation. Paul lays out the beauty of our salvation the first, the first half of it, chapters 1 through 11, he describes where we were and what we now have in Christ. But then there's a shift that takes place in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. If you know one verse, well, we probably know more than one verse from Romans, but most of us know Romans 12, 1. Therefore, that therefore is there for a reason. Everything Paul has said up to this point shifts. If this is true, who we are, what Christ has done, therefore, let us live our lives this way. And he begins to get really practical he begins to talk about, from chapters 12 onward, who we are to become in Christ. So in that first half of the book, when he's talking about we, human condition, are deserving of condemnation, but God in his goodness and his, and his glory made a way for us through Jesus Christ, he talks about themes like justification in chapter 5, sanctification in 6 and 7, glorification in chapter 8. He's just laying out those truths of our salvation. Then in chapter 12, we see once again the shift he becomes practical because all those truths in the first half of Romans are not just meant for theological discussions. They're not meant for Sunday school lessons. They are meant to change who we are and how we live our life. Which brings us to our text today. You're not going to believe this after watching. If you've been here a while and you know that we're like moving through the book of John and we're chopping off like 20 verses each passage, today's message is, comes out of one verse. Advent's not really the time for deep biblical exposition, but I want to encourage you today as we go into the season with this one verse. Let me just make one closing remark or, or, or remark about chapter 16. Those are just closing remarks. There are personal greetings that Paul makes. So really, his theologically rich first half of this book and then the practical application second half of this book almost come to an end at the very end or pretty much come to end at, at the very end of chapter 15. The very end of chapter 15 it's as if Paul says, Boy, I've written a lot about who we are, the hope that we have in Jesus, and what that means to how we live our life. Let me, let me 
breathe a prayer for my audience. And he writes that in chapter 15. So in some ways, chapter 15, verse 13 is a benediction. He writes this rich theological work. He applies it to our life. And now he closes with a prayer. Before his personal comments and his, his, his closing ideas, he closes this section with a prayer for his readers, both then and now. The church in Rome and the church in Westfield, Indiana. Will you read with me? Romans chapter 15. Starting and ending in verse 13. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's so short I should read it again, but we're going to break it down. You've seen me break down 20, 30 verses in chunks. (laughs) We're going to... We're going to really sit on this one verse and break it down. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but roll with me on this, would you? Verse 13 starts off with, I pray that God, the source of hope, God is the source of hope. He's declaring something about God's nature. He's, he's not just the one who inspires hope. He's the one who authors hope. He's the source because of who he is, not because of necessarily what he does. Yes, he does he is the supplier of hope, but he's more than supplier of hope. He's the source. Let me illustrate that to you. Vern, where's Vern Thompson? Vern Thompson is the supplier of Jolly Ranchers to the children of Radiant. <laughs> but he's not the source of Jolly Ranchers. Jolly Ranchers, are, they're not flowing from his nature and his, his essence, his being. But hope is different when it comes to the Lord. He does supply, but he is the source Rooted in who he is, it flows from who he is. It describes his character and his nature. He is the God of hope. Your translation may say the God of hope. But here, the New Living Translation says he's the God who's a source of hope. And the hope that we have in him is different than the hope that we have in other places. See, oftentimes we hope based on probabilities. I think that this has a good chance of happening, and I hope it happens. I think the Colts can win out in December. Because when they play the Saints on the last week of the the season, the Saints will be resting starters, right? So if the Colts can win out, I hope they win the division and not have to go on the road as a wild card. That's based on probabilities. There's no guarantee that's going to happen. And for those of you who know, I'm a Seahawks fan, but I did my research on where the Colts are in this standing, so you're welcome. (laughs) I am pulling for you guys, by the way. I hope. What is that hope based in? I think if I save this much per month, then we'll have enough to go to Disney. I hope, but I don't, I'm not necessarily guaranteed. I hope I can. See, our hope is based on probabilities that may or may not come true. It's a wishing for a good outcome. We use the word hope so much that it might be more honest if we say, I wish that the Colts will win. I mean, that's, that's really what I'm saying. It's a different kind of hope when we talk about our hope. But with God, the God of hope, the God who is the source of hope, it's different. Instead of banking on probabilities, we're banking on promises. Paul writes to the, his protege Titus in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and describes what he's, his purpose is, and he says this. He says, listen, I... I know that God does not lie. Let me read it to you. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those 
God has chosen to teach them, knowing that the truth that shows them how to live godly lives, this truth gives them confidence that they have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. Paul's introduction of who he is as he opens the letter to Titus declares that God does not lie and he's made a promise before the world began. When God promises something, he will do it. The promises that he has made for you or to you, they will happen. His son will return. You really will not be, you, you really are not condemned in Jesus Christ. You really are forgiven and cleansed. You really will be made new. And you really will receive a redeemed and resurrected body. God does not lie. There's not probabilities, there's promises. Keep reading in verse 13. I pray that the God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace. What is it that Paul's prayer is for God to do? To fill you. To fill his readers. The church in Rome, but us today. With joy and peace. Now my tendency right here would be to dive in to joy and peace. And we're going to do that in about three seconds. But can I ask you for a moment to ponder that word fill? Because when I'm reading this text, the picture that comes to mind is the pouring out of one vessel into another, a vessel that would be dry, a vessel that would have no way of producing anything on its own other than being in a position to receive. There's a pouring into, and the beautiful thing, not to jump ahead of myself, the beautiful thing is the vessel that's pouring into isn't limited in what it could pour out. Let's talk about the word joy. Paul talks about joy more than any other author in the New Testament. I know that's not a fair statistic because he is the author of most of the New Testament, so the odds are in his favor. But he talks about joy 21 times. It is a mark, according to Paul, of being a Christian. Joy. So what is Paul talking about when he talks about joy? He's talking about an inward satisfaction of the soul. Remember, we, put, we misplace our hope looking for satisfaction, but God pours into us an inward satisfaction of the soul. Paul's not talking about some bubbly personality, somebody that lights up a room, like my wife. All right. <laughs> That's not what Paul's talking about. Even though we, 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 we call those people joyous people or joyful people, he's talking about someone that is satisfied deep down in the soul and it wells up within them as a believer because they know who they are and whose they are in Christ. And then the next word, that he would fill you completely with joy and peace. Peace points to an inward settledness. We talked about an inward satisfaction of the soul. What about an inward settledness? These words are not the same, but they're related, and we're going to see that in a second, because um, we say these words often, joy and peace, peace and joy, that we don't distinguish them. Here's the distinguishing thing. There is a satisfaction, and there's a settledness. What does Paul mean by this deep-down settledness? There is a rest, a contentment, an ease of our soul for believers that come as a result of God's work in our life through his Spirit. Charles Spurgeon says this about these two words, He describes the relationship between joy and peace as this. Peace is resting joy, and joy is dancing peace. 
In relation to this verse, one biblical commentator says, Joy relates to the delight of anticipation in seeing one's hopes fulfilled, and peace results from the assurance that God will fulfill those hopes. Now remember, Paul's not saying joy and peace, joyful persons and peaceful people. They're not personality types. They're not bubbly people. They're not stoic people who are calm, cool, and collected. Joy and peace are what? Fruits of the Spirit. We know that from Galatians chapter 5. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Chapter 5 of Galatians, verses 22 through 23. He doesn't want an alarm clock either, I know. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Joy and peace are fruits of the Spirit. Paul wants us to be filled with the evidence that the Spirit is at work in our lives. He's praying that the evidence or the fruit of the Spirit's work would, would fill us, would be evident. Keep reading in verse 13. The New Living Translation, which I, I'm reading out of, says, because you trust in him, that he would fill you with joy and peace because you trust in him. Something not in my notes. Just go with me because it's related. It's not one of Jerome's tangents that I've apparently become famous for. <laughs> Yesterday when I was preparing this message and I was looking at the, those words, joy and peace, I didn't ask permission to do this. Just go with me. I... Uh, Many of you know Lorana Snyder uh, lost her daughter this weekend, and I spent some time at the hospital with, with her. And I know yesterday was, was a day where well, the prayer when I saw her on Friday was that her Saturday would just be, be filled with God's presence in light of what has happened and I'm actually sitting there in the Carmel Library. I love Westfield, but Carmel Library is great. And I'm sitting there in the Carmel Library, and I'm looking at this passage, and I'm writing these words out. And I send her a text and said, I pray that your day has been marked by the presence of God, the, the God who is the author of hope, the God who is the one who is a source of hope. And her reply to me was like, Jerome, it's been a great day, and God has been present and he's giving me peace and joy. I was like, ooh, that's kind of cool. That's all I'm going to say about that. Keep learning your prayers. And um, God is being glorified even through hard things to walk through. I, I trust that. But he, let's continue on. Verse 13, because you trust in him. This is the only Greek part of my message. And it's the same word I probably use often over and over again. The Greek root word for faith and belief and trust is pistis. And what you, what you read here, because you trust in him, is actually just a Greek word, maybe two Greek words that they translated into five English words. Your translation, if it's more formal equivalent translation like the ESV or the NASB, probably says in believing, that you will be filled with joy and peace in believing Paul, what Paul means by this is that we place our love, our trust, our confidence, our faith in Jesus. And as a result, that's where joy and peace comes in. Throughout Romans, Paul has made a case that we are condemned because of sin and our condition, but God has made a way. 
We were once without hope, but God sent his son to reconcile lost sinners of which we are of that group, the lost sinners, all of us. Romans 5, 8, probably the other verse you know in Romans by heart. For God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Because you trust in him, you have moved from hopeless to one with hope. And then, this is a long verse. If I can stand up here and justify preaching a sermon off of one verse, it's this, because my translation actually has a period and then a new sentence. Uh, yours probably has a comma, but listen. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. This word then shows us a turn in Paul's prayer. Remember, this is a prayer, a benediction to all the theology he's given us, to all the application he's given us. He's closing it out before he makes his personal comments with this prayer. And now we see a turn in this prayer. Your, your translation may say, so that. Either way, whether it's then or so that, what we see is a transition. Paul is about to give us the why behind the what. What is the what? That the God who is the source of peace would fill you completely with joy and peace. Why? Then you will overflow with confident hope. This book, this prayer, is bookended with hope. The God who is the author of hope, the God who is the source of hope, he wants from us to have confident hope. For those who put our trust in him, for those in light of everything he has done on our behalf, who are living with his spirit, doing its work in us and through us, that we would live lives full of hope. How does this happen? Let's break down this verse, because I really seriously thought about making this into a slide, but it would look like the Recycle logo. And I thought, nah, I won't do that. But listen, we believe in Jesus. The Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of joy and peace in our life. And when joy and peace are in our life, it produces, based on what we just read, further hope. And hope, what does hope do? Produces the fruit of the, you know, our, our, our hope, we put more trust in Jesus than what trust in Jesus do. Joy and peace, hope, I mean, it kind of continues to go. And if you look at that, there's like a cycle that doesn't end. There's a pattern here of endless hope, of a supply of hope that has no end. God is abundant in his supply of hope, which is good news for you and I who need hope. God has hope for you. He doesn't have a sample portion. This is not Costco. He has an abundant supply of hope. And as you, I mean, if you're living here and you feel like, Jerome, I have hope, I have a pretty decent portion of hope, I tell you what, God has more for you. And if you're here saying, I have a sliver of hope that I'm barely holding on to, then God would say, I have, I have it for you. I am the source of hope, and my supply is abundant. See, no matter your level of hope today, God has more for you. His supply is abundant. No matter your level of hope today, God has more for you. As a believer who's in Christ, his supply is abundant. This is his prayer as he closes out this rich theological work to the church in Rome. This is his prayer for those who would read this letter, both then and now. This is his prayer for Radiant. I pray that the God, the source of that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace 
because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer here today, what does that mean? What does that look like? How does that flesh out into our life? Let me give you a couple things to do as we approach, as we kick off this Advent season, as we approach Christmas and anticipate. I would say fight for Advent. Fight for keeping the focus. In this busy season where we're rushing around, having to go to choir practice multiple times this week, not complaining, just, just stating a fact, We do have to fight to keep Jesus kind of the center of this thing, don't we? So maybe I'm not overstating it by saying fight. We've supplied you a, a, a list of readings for the week that you can use. Heather and I came back from Paris and we bought little boxes with chocolate in it. We're going to go with our kids and, and celebrate Advent. With, um, we're not just going to eat the chocolate this year. I hope. I don't know. Maybe we'll just eat the chocolate. But I do. When I was preparing for this, I actually was coming up with resources. This book right here is called, I'm not recommending these books because I haven't read them yet, but go find your own books. <laughs> this is my personal devotional for the next 25 days, Why This Jubilee, Advent Reflections on Songs of the Season. And I've read a couple of them already, and I thought this is going to be great in terms of fighting to keep Jesus as the, the focus of my anticipation looking back on what he's done and looking forward to his return. And this book from the 80s, which you can get on Amazon pretty cheaply with people's coffee stains from years past. The manger is empty and there's, there's multiple. We're going to do this with our children. And listen, there are ways to fight for this thing, to experience this season in a way that maybe we need a, a fresh touch just running around like the season kind of demands of us. Maybe it's been a while since you've experienced the first 25 days of December with some real depth. So find something. Use what we had handed you as you walked in today. And then I would say this, and this is going to take a little courage on your part. Identify the, the misplaced hope that you may have out there. Those areas, those people, those circumstances, those things that you say, I hope if this happens, it would, with the belief that it's going to bring deep satisfaction and deep settledness. As we, as we know, those things fail to deliver. But I would take it one step further and say, be courageous about identifying those things. And we're not identifying those things to, to heap guilt upon us. We're identifying those things so we can consciously make an effort to replace those things with what rings, rings real hope. If you've put your trust in, if you're looking for satisfaction and settledness in a circumstance or a person or a relationship, a final score, name those things, write them down, and then share them with somebody who will keep you accountable. Not because of guilt, but just so you can actively pursue Jesus in this season. If you're not a believer here today, my simple challenge to you would be to seize the season and redeem it? Would you receive the gift that God has for you? The gift of eternal life, and not just eternal life, but eternal life with him, and not just with him, but eternal life with him as a son and a daughter. It's not just a future thing, it's a son and daughter in this life. We can be made right, you can be made right with God. 
who loves you, who created you, who sent his son to die for you. He's offering you a righteousness that you can never earn. He's offered all of us a righteousness that none of us could ever earn. My challenge to you, if you're just here checking things out with questions or concerns, really dive into those questions and concerns and consider receiving that gift 